Carl's preaching from Revelation 8 and he's asked me to read. It's probably because there's lots of impronounceable words or something, but Revelation 8. It'll be on the screen behind me, but if you've got a Bible, Revelation 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and held it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of a trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Happy days. Um, Sounds like such a great idea uh, about six months ago when I thought, we really need to do a series on Revelation. You know, the world is shaking and uh, everything's changing and, and yesterday's uh, securities become today's insecurities and nobody knows where to stand the weight of their life and what's going to happen next. And, and it seems like a great idea to do the book of Revelation. And last week I thought it was a great idea. It went really well, I thought. And, uh, and then we began to study this week and it's just miserable, isn't it? Uh, the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, it feels like there's not a lot of energy in this room. I think the combination of, um, of bank holiday, clearly, and uh, planting four churches and the book of Revelation has mean there's like no one here. So let's, let's get some, why don't we just stand up for a second and uh, I, I, forgive me, but like, shake it off, shake it off. And, uh, oh, very good. And then, now you have a sit down and, uh, and open uh, Revelation. We're going we're gonna to do something absolutely stupid and try and teach through Revelation 6, 7, and 8 in, in a one Okay, and uh, what we've got to understand and remember is our principles around Revelation, and, and that is we are going to try and be as unweird as we possibly can be in a very weird book. All right, and um, remember this is like we described it last week as the apocalyptic comic strip. Um, so this is like everything is caricatured and everything is bigger and everything is nastier and the numbers are exaggerated and everything is. But it, it's like truth like you've never heard before. It's like not real, but more real than you've ever heard anything before. It's like not truth, but the deepest truth you could ever encounter. 
It, it, it owes so much more to Narnia and Lord of the Rings and the stories of our world. You know, we're not supposed to believe that there was a lamppost, but we're supposed to believe there was something significant about the lamppost. We're not supposed to believe that every number in this book and every beast in this book we're actually going to see, but we're supposed to understand that these things are totally real as far as what will happen on this earth, what is happening on this earth, and how we're supposed to posture ourselves towards it. So Revelation chapter 6, 7, and 8. And remember our rules. We're not going to at any stage in this series posture that Donald Trump is the Antichrist or that Brexit is the beginning of the end of all things or that Beyonce is the beast or, or Kim Kardashian features any way in the book of Revelation, although you can find websites where all those things are postured. Um, we're not going to try and do any of that kind of stuff, but we're going to say there is, there is a story behind all the stories. There is one who holds the truth of the world and who has brought revelation. The revelation of revelation is Jesus. The revelation of revelation is Jesus. And we are trying to say, didn't we, last week, what we try to say is there are two things, there are two filters through which we're going to look at the whole of this book of Revelation. They're simple filters, but they're deep filters. Filter number one is there is a war. We're right in the middle of it. It's the war to end all wars. It's the war for your life. It's the war for your children's life. The war is based on this. What are you going to base the reality and truth of your life on? Are you going to build off the original design? You remember the stake? Are you going to build off the original design? Or are you going to attempt to build just off yesterday's design? What people are thinking all around you? Or, or, or is there a higher authority? Is there, is there an original design. Are you going to live your life based on culture, on feelings, on tradition, on experience, or even on reason? Can that take the weight of your life? Or are you going to build your life based on the original fence post, the original stake, the original design? And so this book is a book of hope in hopelessness. It's a book of clarity in chaos. It's a book of courage in fear, and it's a book for our times. And now we're going to deal with three of the weirdest passages of Scripture that you could ever deal with. So we're going to pray. Are you up for that? Let's pray. God, help us. God, help us. Help us hear your voice. Help us understand your heart. Help us posture ourselves towards you. Help us stand when everything else around us is shaking. Help us continue to pursue your purposes in a world that doesn't want to pursue your purposes. God, help us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. The, um, you, I think you've heard me say this before, but in the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, in Spain, there was a British runner called Derek Redmond. And he was a 400-meter runner and not a bad one for a British runner. They said that he might even make the final of the Olympic Games. And uh, he, he, he'd had a major injury in Seoul in Korea in 1988, and he hadn't been able to run. Uh, and it almost ended his career, but he got himself fit. And, and in the semi-final, in, 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 in the heat, he broke the British record. And there was great expectation. And then the semi-final, uh, he, 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 according to his autobiography, he, he started the race faster than he'd ever started the race before, and he was excited. He thought he might make the final. And around the first bend, he pulls his hamstring. 
and he just collapses on the track. And something weird happened. It's like the moment he collapsed on the track, he got up again and tried to limp his way around. He says that he thought that even limping, he might make the final. When you look at it, in the, with the film of it, you think this is totally ridiculous. The guy is moving like at one mile an hour around the track. And then there's a commotion. The commotion comes from the stand. In the stand, there was a big guy. A big guy is trying to get onto the track. He gets onto the track. He doesn't look like the kind of guy who could leap over a fence, but he leapt over a fence. And he got to his son. It was Jim Redman. And he picks up his son, and he, and he starts to hobble around the track, and he moves all the, the stewards out of the way. And apparently, he says to his son, we started this thing together. We're going to finish this thing together. And the crowds start to stand. And as they start to stand, they start to cheer. And, and then the semi-final of the 400 meters, no one remembers who won that semi-final. It was won in about 46 seconds, but Derek Redmond finished in about five minutes, and he got the greatest standing ovation and the biggest memory of the 1992, and they're still standing and they're still cheering, uh, of the 1992 Olympic Games. There, it's almost as if... In the book of Revelation, the Father says this. We started this thing together. I am the original design. I'm the stake. Every mistake that you have made is when you've deviated from the original design. You can be absolutely certain that we will finish this thing together. That one day there will be a day of reckoning. One day you will see me face to face. One day you will have to account for how you built your fence, how you built your, how, how you built your life. And what I'm desperate to do is walk hand in hand with you throughout this life. The secret to walking in the storm of life that is developing, the secret to standing when everything else is shaking, is to tether yourself to original design to focus on ultimate goal and to walk hand in hand with the God who set both. The secret to standing in this world is to tether yourself to original design, to focus on ultimate goal and to put your hand in the one who set both. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's why God reveals horrible things to people because his mercy compels him to draw people to his love. We're going to get a glimpse into future and we're going to get a glimpse into past, but, but more, we're going to get a glimpse into the heart and nature of God. And what we're going to find when we get a glimpse into the heart and nature of God, and this is really important, is you're going to find no split personality. You're not going to find a bipolar God. You're not going to find a God who's one thing one minute and another thing another minute. In his judgment, he is a father in his wrath, he has mercy. In his urging, there is a warning. In his discipline, there is grace. And all the time, there is love. It's shot through with love. Even when it feels like discipline, even when it feels harsh, even when it feels judgment, it's always love. It's always love. It's always love because God cannot be who he isn't. He's totally integrated. And you're going to need to remember that today as we read hard passages of Scripture. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to go like an express train through this. Uh, I'll expect you to have a whole bunch of questions that you email me later. Please don't. Here we go. Revelation chapter 6. We've got a lion who's, who's the lamb. What we found out last week is that he's the only one who can open the seals, the scroll in the hand of God. 
is, is, the, is, is the last will and testament of God. It's God's plan and design for the world and it's left unopened and there is weeping in heaven because you can't open the thing that's going to be the secret to everything that's going to help us understand God. And then an elder says, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks up and he sees a lamb slain with his throat cut. And it's important because it means that he has all spiritual power and he has all moral authority and therefore he can open the seals. And as he begins to open the seals, what we see is God opening. What you've got to understand is that to get to the deal, you have to go through the seal. I wrote that like two days ago and thought it was a really cool thing to say. Obviously not. To get to, get to the deal, you have to go through the seal. And to go through the seal... What you're going to see is, is, is God starting to expose the revelation of reality. When he, when he undoes the seal, what he's exposing is the, is the direct result of what happens when humanity decides to live outside of original design. That's what we're going to see. You're going to see the reality of the world as it's moved away from original design and you're going to see a church that looks hopeless, but is the hope of the world. You're going to see reality and hope. So chapter 6, verses 2 to 8. And, and when, we, when we look at chapter 6, verse 2 to 8, we, we, we've read this passage before, and we know this passage before because there's been a whole bunch of horror movies written about it. It's the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's a great title. Um, and, uh, and we've made a whole bunch of stuff about it. But, but I think in reality, it's God just just revealing reality. It's God saying, this is what happens. This is what has happened. This is what is happening. This is what will happen. Take a look. We've got four horses. We've got a white horse. And what we know about the white horse is that white horse has a leader on that conquers. And so what we've got is leadership that is conquering, is bent on conquering, it's bent on having more, it's bent on achieving for self, it's bent on manipulation, it's bent on power. And we've seen that, haven't we? We see it down through history, we see it even today. I guess we're suspicious of it, I guess that's why some people don't vote in elections. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote in elections, you should vote in elections, but I guess that's, that, that's, that's what we think, isn't it? We see leadership that is bent on personal power so much more than actually achieving good for people and blessing people. We see leadership that has moved away from original design. We see leaders trying to create more followers for themselves rather than releasing leaders and encouraging dreams. We see a white horse. And then we see a red horse. The red horse is the horse of war. War always comes and conflict always comes when we live our lives for me, myself, and I. When we say it's all about me, it's about protecting me, it's about having more for me, it's about possessing more for me, it always comes in conflict with somebody else. Because if your me comes in conflict with my me, there's going to be a war and there's going to be conflict. It's because we've moved away from original design. And then we see a black horse. The black horse is the horse of famine. The black horse is the, is the horse of radical inequality. The black horse is what happens when a world that was set up to be a garden from which we were supposed to eat becomes a selfish enclave of those who have, stopping those who have not having what they need. 
It's what happens when we who were created to be stewards of the garden become owners of the garden. It's what happens when we who were made to hold our hands open like this and receive from God and give from God hold our hands like this and start to own the stuff that God says we were only ever supposed to manage. We didn't walk in step with the Creator, so we didn't work in harmony with creation, and we ended up with a mess. It's like we didn't trust God's economy. We said, God, we don't trust you and your original design to look after us and ours. And so we're going to grab for ourselves and hold for ourselves and stockpile for ourselves. When there is plenty on this earth for everybody, we're going to keep more for ourselves just in case because we don't trust God. Because we're not living by original design. And then finally, the pale horse is the horse of death. Why? Because death and destruction is always where this place ends. If, if, if selfish leadership, conflict, and famine flow, then death is always the ultimate end. And what God is, going, is, is showing us is just reality. He's saying, I, I want to reveal reality for you. This is a progression. It's not because we want to abuse people or we want to fight people, or we want to starve people, or we hate this world. It's just because we moved away from the original design. It's because we just we built our life on yesterday's paradigm rather than the original paradigm. And yesterday's paradigm built their life on the day before's paradigm rather than the original paradigm. And the day before's paradigm built their life on that paradigm rather than the original paradigm. And before you know it, you're a million miles away from the paradigm. And what it looks like is evil, although we hate the thought of it looking evil. We moved away from design. We were supposed to steward and we started to own. And then we said ownership is normal. We were supposed to create culture and cultivate culture and we just ended up critiquing and consuming culture and having no opinion about culture apart from we'll have at it. We're supposed to worship God and we worshiped idols that we created, not because we set out to worship idols that we were created, but because we're building our life off yesterday's norm rather than the original norm. It just seems reasonable to us. We were supposed to build communities of heaven. Because that's the design. And we just built individualistic enclaves that look after me, myself, and I. And it all compounds our sin and becomes evil. That's reality. That's what God says. And then he says, but there's hope. And the hope is a weird thing. Because the hope is the church of Jesus Christ, which, which you and I go, really? Because when we look at the church of Jesus Christ, we see a church that's moved away from original design as well, don't we? We see a church that doesn't look pure. We see it, I mean, honestly, if we read, if we just, if all we had was this, and we didn't have thousands of years of church history and, we, and a whole bunch of cultural references, about 90% of what we do when we gather as church, we wouldn't do. We'd just do something else. We'd love people. We'd build community. We'd communicate the gospel in some way. You know, we wouldn't sit and facing one direction listening to a guy with a lollipop microphone. Not that it's not really good, by the way. But do you know what? What have we done? And yet, God loves his church. Check, check this out in Revelation chapter 7. God is restoring all things through his church. Future hope is his people. Everything that got broken in the garden gets restored in God, in his people. 
the relationship with God got broken. The relationship with one another got broken. The relationship with ourselves got broken. The relationship with creation got broken. And God is redeeming the mass. God has a special place for his people. Even if the church has chewed you up and spat you out, even though the church at times has not represented God to you, even though the church at times seems to have stolen things from you, God still has a special place for his people. And so here we have the number 144,000. Now, I don't think we're supposed to take this literally and believe there are only 144,000 people that God protects and seals. 144,000 is the number of perfection or or completion. It's 12 times 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. And, 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 and you'll notice here there were 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gath. I think what God is saying is that everybody who's ever owned the name of God, everybody who's ever owned the name of Jesus, everybody who's attempted to live their life by original design, everyone who's fought this, this cultural thing that says you should, everybody who said, I'm trusting the weight of my life on Jesus, everyone's safe, everyone's sealed, everyone's going to make it through, everyone's part of the process everyone's part of moving towards the end game we're all and 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 check check this out they are before the throne of god and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread spread his tent over them that's his presence will be with them never again will they hunger never again will they thirst his provision will be for them the sun will not beat upon them although we could do with a little bit of sun nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd he will lead them to springs of living water and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes i mean who doesn't want that That's future hope. The presence of God perfected. The provision of God totally. The the, the comfort of God completely. You will abide with God. Evil will be no more. Kingdom will be all there is. And it's for the people of God. It's for you. It's for those who love Jesus. And so God is painting this picture of, of reality which is dreadful and of hope that is beautiful. And then we come to Revelation chapter 8. And here's the question that I've been wrestling with all week. Here it is. God's wrapping all this up. How can this God that we sing songs to, that we have lived our lives for, how can this John 3, 16 God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, how can this God is love God? How can this God who didn't come to condemn the how can this God allow this stuff? How can this God be such a judge? How can this God seem to be so harsh? How can this God allow these seals to be opened? That's a huge question. It's one of the big questions of this world. Let me have a go at it in seven minutes. Take a look at Revelation chapter 8. God, how do we know? What do we know about this God? What do we know about this? What, what, What we know is this. This activity of God must be an activity of love or it can't be of God. Because God is love. God can't be separated from who he is. So so this activity of God, this opening of the seals of God must be an an activity of love or it can't be of God. Therefore, his judgment here is love. It's loving judgment. It's just, just love. 
And most of us would love to live in dualism, wouldn't we? We'd love to, we'd love to think that sometimes God is just and sometimes God is loving. You know, on, on a good day when you've done good things and good things are happening in this world, God is God of love. And he, when he gets out of bed the right side and, uh, and you're in a happy place, he's a God of love and he's, he's loving you. But on a bad day, when bad things are happening in this world, when terrorism is happening and people are dying and things that are happening should not happen, he's a a God of justice on that moment. But but the reality is you can't divide the person of God. He's always a God of loving justice and just love. That's who he is. His justice is his love, and his love is his judgment. And here's the thing. You want God to be a judge. That's what you want. You want God to be a judge. The person with the split personality is not God, it's us. Because we want to trust God completely with our lives and then we don't want to trust God. We want, we want God to be a judge and then we don't want God to be a judge. We want him to be a judge when he judges the things that we decide that he should judge. But when he seems to judge the things that we decide that he shouldn't judge, we don't want him to be a judge and we've made ourselves God. And so we have this split personality thing. We want a judge. You want judgment, don't you? I I think you want someone to say this is wrong, don't you? You want someone with the moral authority to say this is wrong and to do something about it because nobody else is going to. We want someone on this earth, in the heavens, to say, Syria, what's going on in Syria is wrong. And we want someone to be able to sort it out because no one else is going to be able to. We want someone to say so-called Islamic State is wrong in what they do and how they do it they're wrong. And we want them to be accountable for what they've done, don't we? No, nobody? No, we want these things to happen. We want, we, want, we want there to be a judge. We want someone to bring justice. We want someone to say abuse is wrong and to deal with it because we can't. We want someone to say trafficking, sex trafficking, slavery is wrong. And we want someone to bring an end to it ultimately. We want someone to say terrorism is wrong, exploitation is wrong. And there's a hundred other things on our list of things that we want someone to say, this is wrong and it should not be. But we need someone with the moral authority to be able to do it. We want someone who looks at this world, who looks at that, 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 that paradigm of leadership, of war, of famine and death and say, this is wrong. We need, we need it dealt with. We need a just God. But we decide when we want God to be just. Here's the second truth. You need God to be a referee dad and an umpire dad and a blow the whistle dad and a discipline dad and an end the game dad. We sometimes don't think we want that because we've been drinking at the fountain of culture and not original design, but we absolutely, definitely do. We need someone because we need to or exercise freedom within framework, we need someone with boundaries and plumb lines and consequences and final whistles, or we can't play the game. We can't live in security and love unless we have some boundaries, unless we know what, what the rules are, unless we know where it starts and, and where it ends. We can't play, we can't live in the security of the original design without a dad judge. Here's the truth. We need original design to stand the weight of our lives on. We need future hope to focus the adoration of our hearts on. And we need a father judge to commit our lives to. We need him to be judge as much as we need him to be good. We need him to be judge as much as we need him 
to be good. And that's why we have some of these unpalatable things in Scripture. And, and you know what? Those trumpets, I think, I think actually they're just warnings. They're evidence of his gracious judgment as well. Because they haven't totally happened yet, but they may well. And God is saying, hey, here's a warning. Get on board. It's like, it, it's like uh, the trumpet was, was used in four different ways in the Old Testament, just to show you that I've done my research. It was, it was used to announce the day of salvation and welcome the king on his coronation. So it was used to say, hey, there's good things happening. Trumpet, sound the trumpet. The day of salvation, the king is being crowned. Find that in 1 Kings. But it was also used to sound the alarm and call the people to repentance. Jeremiah 4, 5 and 6. Sound the alarm throughout the land together. I'm bringing disaster from the north. Call the people to repentance. Je- Joel 2, 15 to 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Gather the people to say, spare the people, O Lord. It was, it was blown to say, God, unless you sort yourself out, the consequences of your not living according to original design will break you and will break my relationship with you and it won't go, go any place good. So call the people together, get on your knees and on your faces, because if you want to live in future hope, you better live in original design and walk with the Father. Listen up, there was a warning. Do you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I've got three brothers, and we were always up to no good. I mean, seriously. And when we were up to no good, we always posted a guard. We always had someone who was looking out for mum or dad or the policeman or whatever, we not the policeman, wasn't quite that bad. But you know, there was always something that we were doing or the neighbor or something we were taking or doing that we shouldn't do or escaping from. And, and the person who was the guard always had to do an owl noise. I think it's because we read the famous five or the secret seven and that was always why you had to make it. Mean, you know, honestly, to this day, whenever I hear someone making an owl noise, I think someone's up to no good. <laughs> I don't think it's an owl. <laughs> I think somebody is doing something they shouldn't do. And I think these trumpets are just like warnings like that. It's like an owl noise. So I want you to know, people, both those of you who are trying to live by original design and those of you who are ignoring original design right now, both, both of you who are standing in the middle of this shaking this world is experiencing and trying to find some future hope, I want you to know reality and I want you to know what will happen and I want you to know where your deeds are going to get you. I want you to know this stuff. It's like God is saying, look, I am compelled by my grace even in this messed up world, even in this world that has moved so far away from original design, I am compelled by my grace to love you and win you. And if I can't get you with my beauty and my creation, if I can't get you by my incredible design and with the conscience I placed in you so that you know right from wrong, if I can't get you with that desire that you have to worship something, if I can't get you with that, I'm going to warn you with everything I've got. I'm going to make it as graphic as I can make it. I'm going to give you dreadful insight into the reality of you living outside of original design and without future hope. Here comes a warning. And the eagle cries, One last chance. One last chance. So how do we respond to that? That's a rapid run through three chapters of Revelation. How do do we respond to all of that? I I think there are two different potential applications depending upon 
how you walked into this building today. If you walked in saying, I'm a bit worried about this world, I'm a bit worried about debt, and I'm worried about how the finances are going to work out, and I'm worried about elections, and I'm worried about Trump, and I'm worried about whatever, but I love Jesus, and I've tried to live my life by original design, I think you should feel confident. God's got you. He's in control. He not only set the original design, he also set the future hope. And he is moving in a way that cannot be stopped towards his future hope when he will draw all things together and bring them under Christ, when he will restore all things and set them up according to the original design. It's like a a circular pattern. And you need to know this, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. No trouble, no hardship, no persecution, no shaking. No tribulation, no difficulty. He who loves you sets the boundaries. Eternal life is yours. Forgiveness is yours. Adoption is yours. Security is yours. So live large. Live large without fear in this messed up world. God is able. Whatever you're going through right now. Application number one. Application number two is this. If you're unsure where you stand with God, in fact, if you're becoming pretty sure exactly where you stand with God and you're not standing on God, and if you know that you haven't tried to live your life by original design, but but sometimes by your own fault and sometimes just because you didn't know that, you'd be living off of yesterday's paradigms and you're viewing the Scriptures through the lens of culture rather than culture through the lens of Scripture, and you're saying, I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing, and suddenly you know and you feel compelled, then this is a warning. It's a warning. It's a gracious, merciful warning that the Lord sets up. Do you know, every time I travel on the A1, I'm struck by some of the signs that you get. Have you ever seen those kind of really scary signs? They say something like this, next eight miles, 186 casualties in the last three years. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know who put those up, but they freak me out. You know, and, and what they're basically saying is, if you continue to do what you're doing, if you continue to drive the way you're driving, if you continue to overtake the way you're overtaking, if you continue to get frustrated the way you got frustrated, if you don't do what it was originally designed for you to do, which is drive in safety in that box, your box is not going to protect you. How big your box is, however expensive your box is, your box will crumple and your life will be in danger. Warning. What are you building your life off? Where are you standing? What is the authority of your life? Can it take the weight of your life? What are you banking on to get you through to a future? What is your future? In whom are you trusting? And, and, and the mercy of God not only brings warning, but sends his son. And his son kind of roadblocks the way to destruction with his cross. And says, do you know what? If you just would get on board with my life and my death and my resurrection and my truth and my grace, then you can live your life by original design and it will start to go right. And you can live your life for future hope and you can know where you're going. Warning. And as we close, there's just a couple of verses that I want to focus on. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. 
Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence in heaven. When all this stuff is going on, all this vision and image and noise and the angels are going, holy, 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 Lord God, almighty, 10,000 reasons, good, good father, whole bang shoot, it's going, it's going on, it's like a, on, a, on, a, on a loop and everyone's worshipping, why? Because he's worthy of worship. Stuff is kicking off everywhere. And then there is this half an hour's silence in heaven. Why? for prayer. So the prayers of the saints, so the prayers of those who are already convinced about the original design and of pursuing the ultimate future, and for the prayers of those who aren't yet convinced but are desperate to get on board can be heard by the Savior of the world. Isn't that an incredible thing? The one who started the whole thing and the one who will wrap it all up stops everything so he can hear your prayer, so he can hear your cry so he can hear your supplication, so he can hear your count me in. Why don't we just do the same? Let's be quiet. quietness, why don't you ask the Lord just to remind you of where you've deviated from the original design, from who he made you to be, from what you're pursuing right now. And just speak to him. Ask him to count you in. you've never heeded the warning before, maybe an opportunity just in the quietness to say, count me in. I want to stand in the shaking. I want to pursue your purposes, God. I want to live with confidence in this world. Count me in.